Welcome to the Hyperfine audience. So today, Derek and I are going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be discussing acoustic levitation, which is a new topic for both Derek and me, I believe. Is that correct, Derek? Yeah. I mean, I've seen some YouTube videos, but you know, as, as we'll talk about, those aren't always reliable sources of how it actually works. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then um, rather than try and figure it all out ourselves and then explain it to you, uh, today we've brought on a guest who has dug into this topic himself. Our guest, uh, Professor David Jackson from Dickinson College, uh, recently published a paper in the American Journal of Physics that covers kind of the basics of acoustic levitation. And the reason I want to have him on is, to me, it's a really good uh, example of just like good science. David presents a simple theory uh, that seems to agree with kind of some of the popular science descriptions of how acoustic levitation works. Then he goes and performs uh, three different experiments that disagree with that theory. And then finally, he outlines a more complex theory that is in agreement with the experiments that he performed. Um, so we brought him here to talk about all that. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome uh, Professor David Jackson. Hi, David. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Yeah. You are our uh, first interviewee. Mm -hmm. ah, I'm honored. <laughs> uh, we had one of Zach's friends who's not a physicist come on in an early ep earlier episode just to ask questions as a, a non-physicist layman. And it, that was fun, but it wasn't like an interview. But this is more, uh, let's bring on an expert and talk to, talk to them about their uh, recent publication. So it was you and a student, is that right, who published the paper? That, that's correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, my student, uh, Minghua Chang, uh, he did an honors project. Um, and it turned out just spectacular. It really mm -hmm. turned out well. That's cool. He was an undergrad, right? Yeah. At the time. He's, yeah. he's now a graduate student at Penn State University. Wow. Cool. Good for him. For listeners who aren't uh, in physics literature, I just want to point out that the American Journal of Physics is a really cool journal and that it's it's accessible and it's it's you know professional, high quality, and also very readable if you're not even if you're not an expert in the field. So um, just browsing American Journal of Physics is really cool. How would you describe it, David? It's it's not for students, but it's kind of like educationally based. Yeah, I I, I think that's exactly the way I would say it. It. Um, it's a very high quality journal where the emphasis is not so much on research. It's on the presentation uh, of the results that's understandable to non-specialists. Mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, it is really, it's a great place for undergrads to kind of start to pick apart papers and, and mm -hmm. kind of learn that process of, of yeah, reading I think, and, I think, and analyzing papers. I think undergrads and graduate students could probably read the American Journal of Physics and really understand most of what's in there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they pick up, you know, Phys Review, uh, Phys Res Letters or something like that, it's pretty hard unless you're right. a, a true expert. Yeah. I used it a lot as a as an educator just looking for exactly what you published this paper on is is like how to do the experiments, like the theoretical background for it and how to how to use it in labs and teachings and yeah, it's a great resource that whole journal. Um, so the title, Acoustic Levitation and the Acoustic Radiation Force. I think that's great. Uh, I learned something new <laughs> about the acoustic radiation force. Took me back to my E&M days with Jackson, but I think oh, I didn't God. have to sweat too much, <laughs> but <laughs> I got some hints of it. So <laughs> um, yeah, why don't we start with what uh, how you start the paper, which is the overlay of, um, of how maybe pop science explains acoustic levitation. Yeah. And then we can get into what's wrong with it. 
it, it's it's <laughs> funny. I'm when I first got interested in this topic, which I'll discuss in a in a minute. Um, I went out and did what most people do. You get on the web, and you know how does acoustic levitation work? And you find a lot of websites that, in hindsight, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say they're wrong, but they're extremely misleading. Uh, in that they say things like um, you set up a, an acoustic standing wave, and then they say the pressure is a minimum at the nodes and maximum at the anti-nodes, and and that's just that's just wrong because uh, at the anti-node the pressure is actually swinging from maximum pressure to minimum pressure back and forth, and so it's the pressure is not higher at an anti-node than it is at a node. Yeah, I, I, after reading your paper, I just Googled, how does an acoustic levitator work? And I, I found some of the uh, articles that you cited in your paper. And I kind of went through the whole first page of Google. And I don't think I found a particularly accurate one on an entire first page of results. Um, and yeah, for me, I, th I thought uh, the, the fact that no one considered kind of time averaging, like that's really what they should have said, right? It's the time average at the antennas, but no one mentioned that. And the, the other big thing that I seem to notice is I feel like uh, there's uh, kind of this, this fluidity when people talk about this between kind of the displacement uh, standing wave and a pressure standing wave. And they kind of seem to equate those two things or not point out that they're actually different. Down, yeah. Did you kind of pick up on that anywhere? So, um, yeah, I, I definitely did. And uh, one of the things that I found, um, well, in hindsight, after I finished this product, project, I now know why there's no good explanation on the web. Because there is no simple like truly simple explanation. There's just not. It's it's actually pretty complicated business, uh, and trying to give a good description um, to a layperson is is hard. It's just really hard. I think I think we did it in our paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> but it was not easy. Yeah, could you share a little bit? You you alluded to how you got into this topic, how you found it. Yeah, uh, what yeah. is that story? <laughs> so. Um, so I used to actually be uh, editor of the American Journal of Physics uh, oh. for a good number of years. And when I stepped down, I became the video abstracts editor. And um, AJP received a paper on um, visualizing sound waves using a Schlieren system. And it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful stuff. And I helped the authors put together a really nice video abstract for their article. And because I got very interested, I read their article in detail. And a, a part of the article, they were claiming something that seemed, I wasn't convinced it was quite correct. And so I sent them some questions and we started talking and we went back and forth. And long story short, they, they, they took that part of the paper out so they could get it published. And then we, we debated for months. We went back and forth for months and never could agree on exactly what was going on. And that's kind of what led me to this whole thing. I, I just kept thinking to myself, yeah, this, this can't be that hard, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's pressure and, mm -hmm. and forces. I, <laughs> we've got to be able to figure this out. Yeah. 
It's a, a middle chapter of an undergrad physics textbook. It's not, it's not the most difficult thing in the right. world, you would think. <laughs> but yeah. And yeah, uh, night, I think the distinction between pressure and, and displacement, night, uh, night's textbook makes a big hoopla about the distinction, that those are opposites of each other. So if you went through a class that used night, at least it's covered there properly. <laughs> I, like, I like the... I mean, I feel like that kind of adds to the story of science mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, to uh, people clashing over what is reality and then someone doing something to to demonstrate. It's very like, it reminds me of uh, like anything out of a Feynman book where, you know, like you, you, you was the one where he like, you can't, uh, you use your gravity to pee, not your muscles. And so he like hangs from a <laughs> monkey, monkey bars upside down to, to pee. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of it reminds me of that a little bit. Like, okay, we're gonna we'll just settle it. One of the interesting things uh, about the debate that went on for for months and months was that at that point I had done a little bit of research and I had actually found some of the some of the research literature that um, for quite some time um, have concluded that uh, the particles are levitated at pressure nodes. And the 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 group that I was dealing with um, from Harvard, by the way, um, they they were claiming that the particles are going to be levitated at anti pressure anti nodes. And the the thing that confused me is that one they were disagreeing with the research literature, which you know you really have to have a lot of evidence if you're going to go against you know what's accepted theory. Uh, but they offered a truly compelling physical explanation. And I just couldn't make those two things add up in my head. And, and that's really kind of what got me interested. And then it was just a matter of finding a student that was, you know, good enough to pull off the project and interested. Mm-hmm. For the listeners, um, maybe some vocab should be covered. First, the, um, sh- I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Schlieren. Is that how you say it? Schlieren. That's, that's right. Imaging. Uh, listeners, you might have seen this maybe in popular YouTube videos or, or pictures online where somebody's breathing hot air and there's a, something behind them that's casting a shadow and you can actually see the, the density of the air difference because of the heat. Something like that. That's usually how I see it. Is like a sneeze. Obviously, with what's going on right now, people are showing pictures of sneezes, and you can get some nice visuals of the air displacement um, using this technique. And we'll talk about yours because it's the first time I've ever seen that like two color version, which is really cool. Um, and then, um, so nodes and anti nodes. What we're talking about here, maybe we should describe your experimental setup. It's a speaker on the bottom and maybe it changed at some point later but can, uh, can i can i interrupt real quick there oh yeah i think maybe we should go like slightly one step before that and just say okay. what is acoustic levitation oh, in the first yeah, how about that <laughs> uh, sure. um, so um david if you want to explain that to the audience yeah so i mean it's essentially as it sounds it's levitating an object with um an acoustic wave uh, a sound wave or in our case an ultrasonic sound wave so you can't hear it um, but yeah you can make objects float in air and it's really a compelling thing to see uh, and it's just done with with sound and i think it's like you could levitate something by putting a fan under it and just blowing air up at it but this is like it's very particular points in the the sound wave that are places where something could be stable because you put it in other places but it would move away or you know, not sit still. Um, but this is like a, 
you can see the pictures if you Google acoustic levitation. Usually it's like a little liquid droplet or a foam ball, and they're just like evenly spaced inside, as we'll talk about the nodes or anti-nodes. Yeah, and that's an that that's an important point that there's there's no upward air blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The, the, the air is essentially still, or at least at the macroscopic level, it's still. Mm-hmm. Um, two. I have two questions about the the kind of the experience of doing an acoustic levitation and apparatus. Uh, one is I know you can't hear the ultrasonic sounds, but is there any any sound that you can hear? Is the transducer vibrating or anything like that that you can hear? Or is it just utterly quiet and now something's floating? It, it, it's it's pretty much utterly quiet, but there, there was sort of a high-pitched, uh, very soft, high-pitched tone you could hear. Some harmonic or something. Or, yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other kind of question, I, I was wondering when I was watching this, I don't know if you tried this or not, but if you kind of put your hand in, in where the foam balls would be, are you able to feel anything on your hand? You, you can't feel a thing. If, if you touch the transducer, the, the speaker itself, then you can feel vibrations, but not in the air itself. Oh, okay, so very, very small forces. Although, if, if, if there are um, styrofoam balls levitated and you gently touch the styrofoam ball, then you can feel the ball pushing against your finger, but you can't feel the air pushing against your finger. Gotcha. That's, that's okay. That's pretty cool. Um, okay, Derek, we can hop back to <laughs> our jargon. Yeah. So, uh, the setup, the speaker, there's one speaker, uh, I've seen other cases. I think you could buy a kit that has like lots of different speakers that kind of focus or something like that. But your setup was a single speaker and then a, a, a rigid plate above it. And then uh, sound is coming from the speaker and hits the plate and it gets reflected and that produces a standing wave. And correct me if I say anything incorrectly. No, that's (laughs) Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. And then uh, you had to figure out where to put the plate. Is that right? Obviously too far, it wouldn't reflect nicely, too close. There's nothing to do. So yeah, you have a few options, I guess, to get some sort of nice uh, multiplier of the wavelength of the sound. Yeah, that's right. We would... um we would actually dial in first uh, to try and find a, the resonance of the ultrasonic transducer. Uh, so we would do it like a, a frequency sweep uh, and and look at the um, output on an oscilloscope. And you could see some peak at a particular frequency where the amplitude was very large. And then we sort of, you know, homed in on that area. And then you can just dial in very slowly to... to get the maximum output at that resonance frequency. And and then we would adjust the glass plate above to get a standing wave so that it was just at the right distance so that the the waves traveling away from the transducer and then the reflected waves traveling back toward the transducer would interfere constructively, well, and destructively to to create this standing standing wave. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the nodes, let's, let's maybe talk about pressure nodes and say um, a node is a place, if you saw a picture of a standing wave, um, you'd see large oscillations in some places. And then there's some places that it's actually just stationary. If it was a string, for example, you could visually see the string going up and down. If there was a standing wave on the string, the place where there's no motion, that's your node. And the place where there's large oscillations, that's your anti-node. And so pressure um, values wildly fluctuating from highs and then 
minimums, lows, um, that would be a pressure antinode. And then places where the pressure is not change, changing at all, maybe it's about atmospheric pressure, whatever the room's at, that's your uh, pressure node. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, mm-hmm. I like to, I sort of picture in my mind, um, you know, when kids are like, two kids are holding a, a jump rope uh, and then one person's sort of jumping in the middle. They're, they're at the anti-node where mm-hmm. the, the, the jump rope is going up and down with a large amplitude and the two people holding the ends are at a node where the jump rope is not really moving at all. Mm-hmm. So one thing I remember teaching um, standing waves and pressure and sound and a confusing point for students was the, the pressure node is the anti-node of the air displacement. Is that true that they're they're completely out of phase with each other? Yeah, that that is true, and it, and it's it's a little bit hard to to sort of understand. But the way I like to think about it is, um, if you imagine um, the the particles in the air, if you're right at a uh, a pressure antinode, then for half the cycle, the air is rushing towards you on both sides and and compressing around mm-hmm. you. And then for the other half cycle, the air is rushing away from you and, and decompressing. And so that's how the pressure goes from high to low, high to low. But the particles right at that point are not moving at all. Whereas at the other location, the particles move sort of maximally back and forth. And that the, 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 the particles are not really being compressed or refracted there. So the pressure is essentially constant. There's um, some really good uh, GIFs. Uh, maybe, Derek, we can include a link to it um, by Dan Russell um, mm. that show kind of the particles moving and coming together. And he has um, one of... He has this for all types of uh, waves, but he has one for sound waves where it actually shows really nicely the, the pressure and the displacement uh, waves with actual particles kind of in a cylinder moving. So maybe we can link to that also if anyone's interested. Mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend um, that listeners get on the web and find a, a little animation of the of the sound wave particles uh, in a standing wave because it 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 really explains a lot to see how the pressure anti nodes correspond to particle nodes. Yeah, I think once you see that, it it, it becomes pretty clear. You're, you can just see everything compacting together. And you go, oh, okay, the pressure is going to be higher there. So based based on your description right there, just not getting into the actual physics or math involved, I would have guessed that the place where the air's displacement is zero because it's being squeezed and stretched equally and, and that would be a pressure antinode would be the place a little foam ball would sit still because the air particles are sitting still there. So Correct. That's, that's, Correct. That's the quickest guess at where it should sit so yes and and I, you can even you can even go farther uh and this is where i had the debate with uh, the harvard group um it, you can make a very compelling argument that that's exactly where things should go mm-hmm. and and in fact as we showed in our paper th- there is a force that pushes particles there there mm-hmm. really is it's it's a true honest to goodness force it's just very very weak and, and it turns out that there's a much stronger force that pushes particles somewhere else. Hmm. Can yeah, you so, can okay. you say that word in your paper and that I've read multiple times, but I'm I'm not positive how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> the ponderomotive force. Yeah, this. Yeah. That, yes. <laughs> ponderomotive. Yeah. 
acoustic ponderomotive force. Yeah, the acoustic ponderomotive. As far as I know, I, I don't think anyone has ever talked about an acoustic ponderomotive force before. Um, I couldn't find any uh, references to any papers t talking about an acoustic ponderomotive force. And, and I was surprised when I, because I remember hearing about a ponderomotive force in uh, e and and electromagnetism when um, dealing with plasmas. Because uh, you might have electromagnetic waves, very, very high frequency forces acting on these charged particles. And that's when a ponderomotive force comes into play, when you have a very high frequency oscillating force. And in a sound wave, that's essentially what you have. You have, you know, high oscillating pressure forces. So to hop back to the paper um for a minute, uh, you kind of start off, um, you know, saying you've you looked at, you know, wired and uh, I think how stuff works or whatever. And they, they kind of have these uh, explanations of acoustic levitation that aren't quite spot on. We kind of talked a little bit about that, but what is, what is their uh, explanation that they kind of provide? What is the common explanation? What, what they, the, the common, I think the most common explanation is that um, as I alluded to before, the the pressure is minimum at an, a node and maximum at an antinode. So the antinode sort of holds up the particle so it sits at the node. That's kind of, that's the gist of what, they don't exactly say that, but that's what comes across with their wording. So again, if knowing what I know now and I listen to what they say, they're not incorrect but it's very misleading. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you work through in the paper, you start from basic forces, just kind of like Newtonian free body diagram, summing up the forces, and come up with, it should be at the pressure antinodes, should be the place where it's stable. And then you go through a numerical simulation, and same thing, it should be in an antinode of the pressure. Um, and the acoustic ponderomotive force, same thing antinodes of pressure. But then you get into measuring it and looking at it and say, where are they actually? Like, what is the pressure, the place that they're at? And it ends up that it's a pressure node. Is that true? That is correct. So that the is experimental correct. evidence is counter to the fundamental basic physics idea, yeah, like the, initially. Yes. The, the, the freshman level physics yeah. explanation right. doesn't quite uh, agree with experiments. Yeah, and and that's that sort of suggests that um, I mean I went over this and over it because uh, I was baffled. It's like oh my gosh, this calculation is so <laughs> simple. <laughs> how could it how could it not be correct? <laughs> and the answer is it is correct. Uh, it really is correct. There is a force that pushes the particles to the uh, the pressure antinodes. It's just very very small, and the 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 intro physics model is incomplete. That's really the bottom line. Uh, you're not accounting for everything that you should account for. So yeah, how how did what is that? Can we talk a little bit of detail about that uh, intro physics model? So you say there there's a, a imagine a cubicle particle sitting um, in the the pressure wave somewhere, um, and you talk about the force kind of on the top and the bottom of the cube. And then you end up with a differential equation that's hard to solve. So you simulate it, right? Yeah. And so what did what? How did you kind of simulate it, and what does 
what did the, your simulation like I, I, you I we we know the end outcome but kind of like there were some interesting nuances in there that I kind of want to talk about with the yeah so we 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 got this simple looking differential equation and and you're right the 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 derivation of that equation is really simple uh, a first year physics student could could do it on their own uh, and we even neglected gravity completely. Just just talk about the standing wave. You have a force given by the pressure times the area on one side, pressure times the area on the other. You add them together, and that's it. Set it equal to mass times acceleration. Um, and at that point, you can't solve the equation very easily, but you can think about it. And you can think about this. You can find out that the force is actually oscillating at the same frequency as the acoustic wave. So you have a, a standing force wave, a standing force field. And if you think about that oscillating force, it makes you understand that, oh, if the force is oscillating, the acceleration will be oscillating. Therefore, the position will be oscillating in the opposite direction. It's just a harmonic oscillator. Um, and, and then, because it's oscillating at such a high frequency, you realize the amplitude's going to be very small. So, so you can sort of piece together what the particle might do. And that's what led us to understand that when you're at um, a place where the force amplitude is large, the particle would get kicked around much more than if you're at a place where the force amplitude is small. So the particle will kind of get kicked around to places where the force amplitude is small, and and that's what corresponds to a pressure antinode. And you kind of had these these you kind of said these two things were things were oscillating at a high frequency, the frequency of the uh, standing wave, and a kind of this lower frequency, right? And then you, yeah, you separated those, and that's what led you to this ponder motive. Right. Force. So we didn't actually know that at first. Um, that's what came out of the simulation. So once we sort of pieced together qualitatively what we thought was going to happen, that it was going to end up at pressure antinodes, just like the Harvard group said, we were like, oh my gosh, well, that disagrees with the literature. So let's actually try the simulation. Maybe, maybe our qualitative understanding is wrong. And the simulation gave exactly the same answer. But that's where we could see that there was this really high frequency wiggle that the particles were undergoing and they were also undergoing a much slower oscillation that pushed them to the uh, antinodes. And so that led us to saying, oh, there's two timescales involved, two very different timescales. And that then allows you to do sort of an analytical trick, which lets you solve the equation. Bringing in Landau and Lifshitz, is yeah, that where they come in? That's exactly what we did. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun. <laughs> You never think you're going to use that. And then, no. yeah. <laughs> bam. And so you, you kind of already said this, but I just want to restate it. So this, this ends up uh, showing that still the, the, the numerical simulation, that everything goes to uh, anti-nodes and the ponder motive force also would port, put things towards the anti-nodes, the pressure anti-nodes. Pressure anti-nodes, yes. Yeah. And so... Okay, so at this point in in the game, you've it seems like okay, all all evidence should point to <laughs> to what the Harvard group has has said, what yes. is claiming. All but evidence is against all the previous research. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
Um, so then you set out to to demonstrate. I mean, I just I love the whole process. It's such mm-hmm. a good example of like what I want our undergrads to do too in in their advanced physics course. Um, so yeah, so you set out to uh, show it to demonstrate it. And so yeah, what can you kind of talk about the three experiments that you performed? Yeah. And you know, we so, will spend a little more time on the the last one. Sure. Um, so one one. There was one issue in the back of my brain. Uh, I, I knew the research literature was not wrong. I, I mean, I just knew that, right? It's been around since 1934. This has been well worked out. But they do make an approximation that the particle size is very small compared to the wavelength. And the, the particles that we were dealing with were smaller than the wavelength, but they weren't much, much smaller than the wavelength. So there was this outside chance that maybe the size of the particle was causing things to be different. So it's like, okay, well, let's just do the experiment once and for all and find out which way does it go. So we set up the experiment, which in principle is pretty simple. Um, Of course, I'm a theorist, so any kind of experiment is not simple for me. But you know, you 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 get this transducer, uh, you uh, get a like a waveform generator and an amplifier. You need to amplify it quite a bit, and then you set this glass plate and you go through the process I explained before. You find the resonance frequency and dial in, so you got a standing wave, and then literally you put in these little balls, and they there they go, poof, they just float, and you can put a whole bunch of them in there, um, and they're equally spaced. And the first thing we did was just took a picture just a really careful picture, um, which ends up on the, 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 the cover of the journal um, for that month. It's a really beautiful picture. I, I'm quite proud of that one. Uh, and you can just tell from the spacing exactly what the wavelength has to be. And then you can draw in the waves because you know at the hard boundaries, you're going to have a pressure antinode. So you can just draw in the waves and you can see the particles are sitting at pressure nodes. You can just see it. There's no question about it. Yeah. So that, I, so I kind of, I'm kind of curious, you did that and you didn't just go, oh, I've done it. There, you, you thought I need to do it again, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> we need to do it again because, because I had been at this point uh, talking with, you know, another group of people who disagreed with us for months. And so that one piece of evidence was just not enough. So we wanted to really nail it down. So we thought that the next thing we should do is literally just go in and measure the pressure, right? It, it can't be that hard. Uh, and so we got a uh, a microphone, a nice, you know, sensitive microphone, and put a hypodermic needle, like a one millimeter inner diameter needle, on uh, the microphone. And so you could so you could put it into the experiment. And of course, the needle was so small it wouldn't really cause any disturbance to the system. And then literally, you just you know you you take pressure measurements. And depending on where you are, you can see the pressure go up and down. And when you're at an anti-node, it's swinging wildly. And when you're at a node, it's not swinging at all. So we just measured it out and uh, showed once again that the particles clearly are sitting at uh, the pressure nodes. Um, I have a couple of questions about that that uh, setup. I mean, I guess one thing I want to state is I feel like uh, maybe a lot of people don't realize it, but microphones are actually, you know, pressure measuring 
tools. Like that's kind of their, their function. Um, yeah, I think it's just because we don't think about sound, you know, the lay person doesn't necessarily think about sound as a, a pressure wave. It's just kind of its own thing. But uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I liked that you used the microphone, to, you know, which is what it is to measure the pressures at all these different points. But then how did you attach the needle to that to only get it to like, I, I guess I'm, when I'm thinking of microphones, I'm thinking of like the one that's in front of my face right now that is giant. <laughs> and I can't imagine how I'd put a needle on that. Yeah. Well, we got, we got a, a small uh, condenser microphone, which actually looks much more like a, uh, I'm going to say needle, but it's not that small. Uh, it much, looks much more like a pencil, say, yeah, a little bit thicker than a pencil. Something um, that um, uh, the Price is Right host might. Yeah, there uh, you Bob go. Bob Barker. There you go. Um, and, and then we were able to, we have a, a technician here who helped us uh, build a little connecting device for the needle. And wh while we're at it, you, you were mentioning the, the, the microphone and how it works. Uh, I always like to, to mention to people that I was very into music. Um, well, I still am. Um, but uh, yeah, a microphone is behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, a microphone really is is just like a speaker, uh, kind of running in reverse. So a speaker, you put in some alternating current, and that that sort of moves a little diaphragm back and forth, which causes the air to increase and decrease in pressure. And then a microphone is just a sensitive diaphragm where the the incoming pressure waves will push on that diaphragm, and that will induce a current. Yeah, it's it's a you could even put one back to the other and you kind of get an optical or not an optical, uh, I guess an acoustic isolator for your electrical mm. signals if you wanted. One of the experiments I used to do, uh, I've taught introductory um, non-science students for a good number of years. If you take a speaker and you connect the output of the speaker directly to like a, a sensitive voltage source, like a oscilloscope or something like that. If you just yell into the speaker, you, <laughs> you get a huge signal. So a speaker can be a microphone in right. a sense. Okay, so sorry, I'm worried I, I pulled us away a little bit from <clears throat> from the results. But so you measured the pressure, um, and these these are I'm guessing time averaged pressures that you're they, measuring, right? They 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 weren't when we were measuring it. So the the oscilloscope is giving us a perfect sine wave of varying amplitude depending on the position of the needle. So if the needle was pointing right at a pressure node, uh, then the amplitude was very, very small. And if it was right at an anti-node, then the amplitude was very large. And so we, we effectively just measured the amplitude of the wave as we went from the transducer to the glass plate. Gotcha. And, and so you, what you noticed is where the amplitude was really small is where, where the balls were. Exactly. Okay. So, okay, that's... Two, two experiments two. <laughs> that have shown this. So, and yet again, you, you said, okay, I need to do another experiment to, to really this lock one, this down. This one was just for fun, really. <laughs> just to show um, off. <laughs> well, the, the group that we had been discussing this with, the, the Harvard group, the main focus of their paper was not acoustic levitation. The main purpose, purpose of their paper was that they could visualize sound waves using what's called a Schlieren optical system. And th th they published a picture of a standing sound wave. 
And I was just blown away. It's like, oh my God, you, you can see this in real, I can't believe it. So once we set out to do this project, that was the end goal. Not only are we going to nail down what's going on with acoustic levitation, we're also going to see the sound wave. So we constructed a, a Schlieren optical system and sure enough, it took a lot of work. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it wasn't easy, but we were able to actually see the standing sound wave. And when you, when you say see it, that we're talking about not just like, you can actually see high the, the pressure nodes and antinodes, right? Like the, the high and low pressures in a given moment, like Correct. from the, the oscillations. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so the trick is, um, well, well, first of all, let me, let me just say a, a quick word about a Schlieren system. So the, the principle is pretty simple. If you take a, a point light source so that the light rays are going off in all directions. And then you take a spherical mirror and you place that light source right at the center of the sphere. Then the, the light waves will, will go out, they'll hit the sphere and they'll come right back to the center. So if you move the, the point light source just a little bit off center, then when the light waves come back, they make a little image right next to the, the point source. So all of the light focuses right back to a point. So what you do is you block that light. You put, you put a little wire right there so that none of the light can pass. And then you put a camera behind it. And so now you're just looking at the mirror and none of the light from the, the point source is making it into the camera. Now, if you put something in front of the mirror, something that changes the density of the air, you'll change the index of refraction and the light will bend. And once it bends, it makes it past the wire light block. Now it gets into the camera and now you can see it. Yeah. To, to illustrate just slightly, uh, you know, I, one, one place you, everyone has kind of seen this either in movies or in real life, kind of the, uh, the effect of light bending with the density of air is kind of the, the, waviness of air over uh, hot asphalt, right? So you're kind of, you're, you're utilizing that effect to see the light. You're bending the light with kind of that same sort of effect, except in that case, they're using uh, temperature to change the density of the air. And in your case, you're using sound waves or pressure. Correct. So how about the, the color bit? Because that was new to me. That looked really cool. Yeah, yeah that, that was pretty cool. And, and important in this particular experiment because, um, as we have been saying, the, the pressure waves, the standing pressure waves, the antinodes actually oscillate between high pressure and low pressure. And they're, it's continually changing, you know, 30,000 times per second. And so if we're going to see the standing pressure wave, we need to have a light that's turning on and off at exactly that same frequency. So that's what we did. We took our little point light source and just uh, triggered it to go on and off at exactly the frequency of the um, acoustic wave. And that allowed us to freeze the, the pressure wave, the standing pressure wave, although the, it's, it's called a standing wave because it doesn't move, quote unquote, but it's continually changing. And so we were able to sort of freeze it at the exact same phase of its cycle over and over and over again. And that's what allowed us to see it. So the way we could tell high pressure from low pressure 
is by putting colored filters on either side of our little light block, that wire. We put a red filter on one side and a green filter on the other. And then if the light got bent to one side, it would go through the green filter. And if it got bent the other way, it would go to the red filter. I, I think it's a fantastic picture of the sound waves, but I really love the coffee and the, the ice block <laughs> showing yeah. the different colors <laughs> on the top and the bottom. So you can really see, like Zach was saying, with the temperature effect, changing the pressure that way. Yeah, you can see in a cu hot cup of coffee, one color on top, a different color in the bottom, and then a, a, I don't know what that's called, frozen brick <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to put in a lunchbox. Ice pack. An ice pack, there you go, thank you. <laughs> uh, reverse of the colors, I think that's cool. And, and that is... <laughs> That was actually much, much easier. Mm -hmm. You you don't need to align your Schlieren system all that well to see temperature changes. A candle or a hair dryer or mm -hmm. a hot cup of coffee, that works really, really well. That's why the, the picture in the paper is so striking. Mm -hmm. But the sound wave, the, the pressure differences are so small. The density changes are so small. And the light's only on for a very small amount of time. So everything has to be aligned just perfectly to really get to see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, so you took a picture then with some foam balls, um, is levitating in your acoustic wave in your apparatus with the Schlieren setup. And can you describe kind of the result? What did you see? And, and how does this, how is this the third stamp on, yeah. uh, on, on putting this to death now? So, so this was actually not as not as simple as you might guess. Uh, I sort of alluded to the fact that um, if light bends one way, it's one color. And if it bends the other way, it's the other color. But it doesn't bend one way or the other just based on temperature or density. It bends one way or the other based on a density gradient. So how the density is changing as you move upward in the, in the pressure wave. So it turns out that the, the styrofoam balls can be observed right sort of smack in the middle of the colored bands, which means the colored balls are being levitated at places where the change in density is maximum or minimum, where there's a large change in density. And that turns out to correspond to a pressure node once again. Yeah, it took me a little bit to process that because when I mm -hmm. first saw the picture, I thought, isn't this showing the opposite of what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you had claimed? And then, yeah, I had to actually look at the plot of a pressure wave and realize, okay, yeah, the, the, the slope of this line is maximal at the node. There you go. It's the slope that matters of the <laughs> pressure wave, yeah. So, yeah, that, then, yeah, so that predicts right in, right in the colors and that's what you show. And so, okay, so you have... I presume you showed this to uh, everyone now and you said, okay, it's settled. We got it. it. it, it yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I got to tell you, we were, when we finally saw that, because we, this project took about a year, really, from start to finish, from nothing to building the Schlieren system, building the, the acoustic levitation system. And when we finally got that image, we were just high-fiving each other all over the place. <laughs> that was a fun moment. I bet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, do you still have the the, the Schlieren setup? Or yeah. did you tear oh, yeah. it down already? So is, no, is well, there we, any I mean, other plans to do stuff with it? We, we tore it down temporarily. Um, but yeah, we, we have plans to use it in our um, sophomore level vibrations, waves, and optics course. Uh, 
and as a demonstration in the introductory course. And this whole acoustic levitation thing is going to become sort of one of our advanced lab projects. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I think I might try to steal that and bring that to oh, UCSB yeah, as well. <laughs> That's what AJP is all about, right? Exactly. Great yeah. projects for advanced students. So, okay, after after all of this, you've shown then now, okay, kind of this, what we said, the kind of sophomore level approach doesn't agree with experiment. Um, and so what's what's the next step? I mean, I guess in the paper, you've you said, okay, I need, let me try to find a theory that predicts this. Yeah. Well, thankfully, the, the theory had been developed, well-developed. So it was just really a matter of trying to understand it. Um, and it's pretty high-powered, you know, it's fluid dynamics. You have to actually treat the air as a, a true fluid and use the Navier-Stokes equation and what's called the continuity equation, uh, which is really just conservation of momentum and conservation of mass. The the difficulty is that these are nonlinear equations. That's kind of the key point. Um, and physicists are trained, sadly, we're trained to think linearly. Um, almost all the problems we solve are linear. And we solve linear equations be because there's a systematic procedure for solving linear differential equations. You can always solve them. But nonlinear equations, there's no well-defined technique for solving a nonlinear equation. So as soon as you see, you know, that you've got nonlinear equations, you basically throw up your hands and say, we can't do it. Maybe we can simulate it, but we can't solve it. <clears throat> so what people typically do in a situation like that is they do what's called a perturbation analysis. So you say, oh, well, let's assume everything is, you know, constant. And then there's some small perturbation. So there's a pressure change, which is really small compared to the pressure that you're at kind of thing. And then you do an expansion. And for an acoustic wave, that actually works really, really well because the, the pressure changes you're talking about for sound waves are pretty small. They really are very, very small. So this is an approach that works really well. And when you do the first order, the linear analysis, what you find is you get the wave equation which leads to standing waves. So that leads us right back to our sophomore level approach. So the first, the first, um, uh, the, the first piece of the expansion leads to what we just did, the whole ponder motor force and everything. So again, we're sort of scratching our heads like, okay, well, <laughs> I guess we go to second order. And again, we didn't do this for the first time. This was something we just looked up in the literature, but now we could understand what's going on. So when you do the second order, which is the first nonlinear term, that's where things kind of come together. You end up with, um, because at, at, at linear order, when you have just a standing wave, if you do a time average, you get zero. Okay, so there's no net force uh, from a standing wave on a particle if you do a time average. But if you go to the first nonlinear order, then you get a non-zero time averaged force. And that's what's called the acoustic radiation force. So it's it's really a nonlinear effect of the standing wave. Okay, the the linear part of the Navier-Stokes equation gets us back to the the, the wave equation. Sophomore analysis, yeah. the the yeah, the ponderomotive force. But then you did the second order 
uh, analysis. And that led to something new. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's the part where we we tried really hard to come up with a good qualitative description, and um, it's it, I'm not sure we really succeeded. Um, but given that it's it's second, so the second order pressure uh, is nonlinear, and so it actually goes as the first order pressure squared, and that's kind of the key when you square the first order pressure because it's a standing wave it's oscillating up and down but when you square that it's always positive and so now you get something that's not that does not time average to zero and that is the that is the thing quote unquote that the particles ride on that acoustic pressure wave that acoustic radiation force excuse me yeah, so you know, um, for all you calculus students out there, right? You you should all know when you average a, a cosine or a sine over a period, right? It always averages to zero, which is what you're saying is the linear example. And then, but if you square it all, now it's all between zero and one, and so the average is out to something positive. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's that's what you did, and that's what the. But is there? Does that do you or does anyone have kind of a? a you know, a, a non-mathematical way of thinking about so the, this the, acoustic the, force. The, 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 the description we kind of developed is that if you look at the Navier-Stokes equation, um, there's a term uh, that goes as like the gradient of the pressure, okay? Like the derivative of the pressure with respect to position, and that's a force. And that means you can actually think of the pressure as sort of like a potential energy, because if you take the gradient of a potential energy, you get a force. So the pressure is sort of like a potential energy. And at the nonlinear order, you're looking at the pressure squared. So if you look at the square of the pressure and think of it as a potential energy, then you're going to end up going to the minimum of that potential energy. And that is precisely where the pressure nodes are. So it's not a simple description, but... It was satisfying to me after thinking about it for a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. When once something gets reduced to potential energies, I think everything becomes a lot easier to understand from a, a physics perspective. Um, I am when I when I try to shoot for, you know, non-physics talks. So I feel like, you know, when you say potential energy, a lot of people don't know what the heck that is unless they've taken a physics course. And I, I guess I, I I don't know if any I didn't research this maybe, so maybe uh, I need to look into this. But I'm wondering is there any sort of like you know kind of billiards ball style uh, broad sense of what's going on, or maybe that's just too linear it, thinking, it, and that's just what I'm. That's doing. exactly right. If if you think about it in terms of sort of billiard balls and stuff, that's what brings you back to the ponderomotive force. That leads you to the wrong direction. That leads you to the wrong not not that it's not a real force. There really is a force that pushes things to pressure anti-nodes. It's just small in comparison to the uh, acoustic radiation force, which pushes things elsewhere. Yeah. So I guess I, I'm too suffering from this uh, non-intuitive, non-linear uh, thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I have, I have two questions. You've alluded to the fact that there's been literature on this since the 30s, and I'm assuming that's what this stuff was you you said that you you know you didn't invent the navier stokes application to this problem is that true and then 
the older literature did go through all that math and showed that that's in fact the way it should behave. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and in fact, okay. I, I don't know how much you've ever gone back to the old literature uh, in, <laughs> in your your research and things, but I'm always amazed at some of these old papers. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this calculation was first done by a guy named King in 1934. And if you look at, I mean, it's just a treatise uh, page after page after page after page after page of hardcore calculations going out to like fourth and fifth order. It's just mind-boggling. I, he, it must have taken him years to do all this. No stuff. Mathematica. Yeah. No Mathematica. So it's, it was impressive, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that was another question. So you, you stopped at second order. Is there anything interesting that happens beyond that? Or is it all much smaller? I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest. We stopped at second order. Once we explained it to our satisfaction, it now agrees with experiment, yeah. we're done. <laughs> Besides, the Got year it. was up. My student was graduating. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. There's practical limitations yeah. on how many orders you can actually go out. In of. fact, <laughs> in fact, um, ah, this was when coronavirus hit. It mm. hit March of uh, 2020, and that was the second semester of my student's senior year. He was mm. deeply into this project, and everyone got sent home. So mm-hmm. he was afraid it was not going to get completed. We had not finished it at that point. And because he's an international student, he was given permission to stay on campus. Um, and so he was one of few people on campus. And he petitioned to go into the physics department, tear down the entire experiment, bring it back to his dorm room, which he was now the wow. only person in the dorm. And so he set up a room for this experiment and continued the project for the last six weeks of the semester. And that's when things really came together. So I, mm-hmm. I owe a lot of this to him. He worked really, really hard. All the the stories, the myths of Newton going into isolation during <laughs> yeah. whatever pandemic <laughs> yeah, was happening. Right. He actually did it. <laughs> <laughs> so good for him. That's great. Uh, maybe soon to be Dr. Chang or... Someone who's yeah, enjoying grad well, school, Mr. Chang. We'll see. He's only he's only been in grad school for one year now. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, I, you know, uh, whatever happens, he's definitely brought something cool to other schools now. Because I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm definitely going to try and bring this to UCSB as a project for our yeah. students. And, and, so well, one of the things I like about. Um, a project like this also is that uh, there's just no substitute for something like this to have done that as a senior and spent mm-hmm. literally a year of his life working on the theory and the experiments and the simulations and piecing it all together. And, and he kind of had to do it on his own. I mean, I was there to help obviously, but um, I feel like senior projects are the senior's responsibility. So he, I really forced him to kind of drive the project and make it happen. And he did. He rose to the challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be an experience he'll remember for the rest of his life. Definitely. And good on him to get a, a publication yeah. out. That's yeah. great. <laughs> As an undergrad. Very cool. Um, one final question. We haven't talked about gravity. I know it's here because it's levitating. But if we were to do this in space, would anything change? Would the Would it just not be just slightly below the node like it is on Earth, and it's just now in a yeah. An I think I think node. that's exactly right. So yeah, okay. we've everything we've talked about was sort of 
assuming gravity wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we say that, you know, these particles are levitated at, at pressure nodes, that's not quite true because right. once you turn it on its side and allow gravity to act, they come down a little teeny bit. Mm-hmm. So they're just, just below the pressure nodes. So yeah, if you were in space and that gravity force was turned off, they would be exactly at the, at the nodes. Would this work sideways? I don't, I, I would it, imagine it, it would, the thing would just fall out of the sound wave. Yes. The, the okay. system we had, if we'd literally turned it sideways, it would not work. Yeah. Okay. But there are, there actually, are ones that. Actually, yeah. let me correct that. Um, in our theoretical calculations, it wouldn't work. But mm-hmm. the transducer that we used actually had a dimple in the center of a cylindrical column. Mm. And so that dimple actually in, uh, resulted in inward radial forces. Mm. So when you put the balls in, you could see they were sort of sucked to the middle of this thing. So it's not clear that it would, would not work if we turned it sideways. It might. Mm-hmm. We did not calculate any of those radial forces. Too complicated. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I like, um, uh, you know, I think at one point you have a, a quick one-liner in the paper that says, you know, by symmetry, uh, forces in, in <laughs> that direction are all equal. We're just going to talk about this direction. Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention Very to what I'm doing with my hands as I say this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, the, the listeners can't see our hands waving around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, cool. This has been fascinating. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to see what Zach builds for his students at UCSB. And um, yeah, I invite all listeners to check out the paper. If you've never dug into a physics paper, this is a perfect one to um, dip your toe in and the water's fine. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, you, you can then be more of, I don't want to say necessarily an expert, but you'll have more detailed understanding of what's going on than anyone else who just Googled how does an acoustic <laughs> levitator work? Yep. You'll get um, the I, real story. Yeah. I, I did see, so one of the questions I was going to ask, but then I found the answer before we started recording was how much does it cost if we wanted to do this? And I watched a YouTube video by Physics Girl where she bought a kit from University of Manchester. I think they put together kits that you can Bristol. purchase. Bristol. Yeah. So, yeah. so you've seen the video also. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she just bought a kit and it was some soldering and, but you got, it, it wasn't one speaker. It was like a whole bunch of little tiny speakers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I guess it's off the shelf almost pretty, it, it is pretty, pretty much to accomplish this. Pretty yeah. much off the shelf now. Um, yeah. uh, our system was a, a bit more elaborate in terms of the control we needed because we were trying mm-hmm. to actually visualize the sound wave in addition. Um, but yeah, the, 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 you can get a kit for, I don't know, 50 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a fun little uh, weekend experiment if uh, if you want to give it a try. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I know we're kind of wrapping up, but sorry, just another question popped into my head that I'm kind of a little bit curious about is: Did you try putting in anything smaller than a uh, the the foam balls? Because you did allude to that, you know, it, it maybe if the size of the particles really small is kind of the assumption that was being made with the kind of Newtonian approach. Um, but you kind of had a, a mid-range, mid-size ball. Have you tried putting in a really small thing? And what happens if you do? We, we, we did. We put it, the smaller things behave exactly the same. Um, our, our amplifier was not really big enough to do m- more bigger objects. We kind of wanted to put in some bigger objects, you know, something uh, larger than a wavelength, kind of see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and we weren't able to do that. And we, we also, unfortunately, weren't able to do uh, water droplets. Um, we just didn't have quite enough power. 
Um, but we did not try something like an ant. Uh, I've seen <laughs> oh, I've <God>. seen <laughs> pictures of levitating ants. They don't get hurt either. They they live mm-hmm. through the process. <laughs> they don't have ears that get blown out. <laughs> ah, I should mention that. I was um, just going to say in, yeah. in our system, um, the we we had a, a sound pressure uh, meter because we didn't know you know if this would be dangerous or not, and the sound pressure readings can be quite high, uh, well over a hundred decibels in the the cavity itself um, it drops off pretty quickly so you know 10 to 20 centimeters away from the cavity and it's definitely safe um, but to to levitate water droplets I think the sound pressure levels in the cavity are of order 160 decibels which Ooh. can be really dangerous actually mm-hmm. so you know depending on the system I think that the kits that you buy are not they're not going to be dangerous at all. Um, but if you were to build something like this, uh, ear protection is definitely warranted if you're going to get any ear head anywhere near the cavity mm-hmm. itself. So your hand can go in, that's fine, but yeah. just not your ears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did just glance out of the corner of my eye a footnote in your paper that the mirror was $3,000 for the imaging. So the mirror <laughs> it took was four to six months to get it. So. Now, now, I should point out, you don't need to have such a nice mirror. But, you know, we figured this is something that's going to live on for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was so expensive is because we wanted as big a mirror as possible. The bigger the mirror, the bigger the region you can view. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get a relatively inexpensive, you know, four-inch diameter mirror, and you can do Schlieren, some basic Schlieren uh visualizations with that pretty easily actually so it doesn't have to be an expensive system cool awesome well thanks so much this has been a fantastic interview and i really enjoyed talking with you well thank you for having me i really enjoyed it glad to have you as our our first interviewee that was great yeah (laughs) well thanks everyone for listening and yeah you can catch us at thehyperfine.com and find all our links and show notes and um, all the other social media things that you might be interested in there um, yeah, and uh, you can find us also on Reddit. This mm-hmm. this uh, episode, when it comes out, well, when you're listening to this, you'll find a link on Reddit if you want to have a discussion there. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Fizax. I'm not going to spell it this time. <laughs> I'm like Tortilla on most social media. Derek Padilla, like Tortilla. And uh, yeah, David, any social media or links that you want to drop in audio form? Um, we'll well, include in the show notes as well. Uh, uh, <laughs> In the future, I'm about okay. to launch something. I'm not even going to mention it now, okay. but um, <laughs> but maybe if you have me on again in the future, sometime I'll mention it then. Okay, great. If you if you want, you can update us in the future, and we'll uh, maybe we'll have you on talk about it, or we'll post it. We'll backdate the mm-hmm. the links as needed. Sounds good. 